You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I saw it coming. I knew that Kim Davis was going to be America's most famous persecuted Christian lady martyr bigot. When the story first broke, months and months ago, when Kim Davis, in June, refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples as the county clerk, elected county clerk in Rowan County, Kentucky, I knew how this was going to play out. We'd seen with the pizza parlor owners who refused to cater a gay wedding. Not that anyone ever actually asked them to cater a gay wedding, but they refused preemptively to cater any gay weddings. And then somebody said something mean about them on Yelp and they closed their pizza parlor and sweet, sweet bigot money rained down on the owners of that pizza parlor. $1 million was raised online from gullible rubes to make them feel better about being anti-gay bigots that someone said something mean about online. That's what Kim Davis's goal was all along. I saw it coming. That when she said she wasn't going to issue those licenses, I knew what was going to happen. There would be court cases. She would defy court orders. She would defy ultimately the Supreme Court of the United States and then she would be held in contempt of court and sent to prison. And then marriage licenses would be issued, which is what happened. Marriage licenses are now being issued in Rowan County, Kentucky to same-sex couples and opposite-sex couples while Kim Davis is in prison and Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum and Pat Robertson run around the country claiming, Mike Huckabee says, that this is the beginning of the illegalization of Christianity and the persecution of Christians in the United States of America, which it is not. And proof that it is not is Mike Huckabee is a free man. If we were rounding up Christian conservatives, if we were rounding up opponents of marriage equality and throwing them in jail for opposing marriage equality and being Christians, Mike Huckabee would be in jail. And he ain't. All along, Kim Davis's goal was sweet, sweet bigot money. She says it's about defending traditional marriage. She says it's about the Bible. She says it's about faith and Jesus. But let's look at her own conduct briefly, shall we? Kim Davis, who doesn't think gay couples should be allowed to marry because the Bible, has been married four times and divorced three times. She was pregnant by her third husband while still married to her first husband. And then she got her second husband to adopt the children that she had by the man who would eventually become her third husband. And then she divorced her third husband and married her fourth husband, who was also her first husband. It's hard to keep track. Kim Davis's family tree is about as Baroque as the Hopsburg family tree. You need a flow chart, an Excel spreadsheet, and an abacus to f- track it. The Bible forbids adultery and divorce. And Kim Davis, despite her sincerely held religious beliefs, never denied herself a divorce, never denied herself a second, third, fourth marriage. All adulterous, according to the Bible that Kim Davis points to when she wants to tell someone else what they are not allowed to do, but doesn't glance at when she's figuring out what she wants to do. And I think Kim Davis is a perfect example of what passes for Christianity in America today, for the pathetic bullshit that passes for Christianity in America today. Because thanks to the efforts of hate groups like the American Family Association, the Family Research Council, the 700 Club, the Moral Majority, the National Organization for Marriage, the National Association of Evangelicals, and frankly, the mousy, near-complicit silence of left-wing and progressive Christians, Christian now is synonymous with anti-gay bigot. 
To be a good American Christian like Kim Davis or a good Alaskan Christian like Bristol Palin, you don't have to stay in your first marriage. You don't have to stop sitting on the dicks of random men who aren't your husband. You don't have to deny marriage licenses to straight people in Kim Davis's case who are remarrying or marrying outside the faith or obtaining marriage licenses for godless secular marriages. No, the only thing you have to do to be a good Christian in America, according to all these right-wing batshit nuts, is hate homos. Hate the homos and you are right with the God of Tony Perkins and Josh Duggar. Hate the homos and you are good. You're in with American Jesus. Toss in support for capital gains tax cuts and American Jesus loves you even more. You don't have to feed the sick. You don't have to clothe the naked. You don't have to house the homeless. You don't have to do any of that shit Jesus actually ever talked about. You just have to hate the homos hard enough to go to jail for your beliefs. No, wait, to cash in on your bigotry, which is what Kim Davis is doing. The people around Kim Davis, the lawyers from the odious theocratic Liberty Council, what they're doing is they're trying to create a radical new definition of religious freedom in this country. That religious freedom does not mean that you are entitled to your own religious beliefs. It means that you are entitled to impose your religious beliefs on others, that you have a right to trample on other people's rights, to overrule them, to interfere with them if you can point to a sincerely held religious belief as a justification, but only if you're Christian. At the same time the Kim Davis story was dominating the headlines, a Muslim flight attendant was suspended from her job for refusing to serve alcohol on a flight. The Liberty Council did not rush to defend her, sincerely held religious beliefs on her part that people should not drink alcohol. People had no problem looking at that Muslim flight attendant and say, well, if you don't want to serve alcohol, you shouldn't have this job. Same goes for Kim Davis. You don't want to make with the marriage licenses? You shouldn't have this job. You are not forced to be the county clerk. You chose to be the county clerk. If the duties of the county clerk conflict with your beliefs, then don't be the county clerk. If serving alcohol on that flight conflicts with your beliefs, don't be a flight attendant. Religious freedom is this. I don't eat pork. It's against my religion. So I don't work in a place that serves pork. The Liberty Council wants religious freedom to be, I don't eat pork, and I'm going to knock that ham sandwich the fuck out of your mouth if you try to eat one yourself. And I'm going to get a job in a place that serves ham and refuse to serve it so that nobody can have ham because my religion doesn't allow people to eat ham. That ain't religious freedom. That is religious tyranny. That is religious people persecuting other people who are not of their same faith and who are entitled to their own rights to a fucking ham sandwich or a marriage license. What the Liberty Council is after here, this radical redefinition of religious freedom, is about replacing the rule of law with the rule of my imaginary friends versus your imaginary friends versus his imaginary friends. And that's not really going to work. In a multi-ethnic, multicultural multi-faith and within faiths, multi-denominational society, that is a recipe for a war of all against all. That is a recipe for civic chaos. The Kim Davis saga, as I sit here recording, is still unfolding. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I'm certain it's going to play out exactly as I have predicted all along. She's going to be showered in money. There's going to be a ghost-written book. And she is going to go on the poor, persecuted Christian martyr lady speaking circuit for the next few years. And then we are never going to hear from Kim Davis ever again. And personally, I'm looking forward to that blessed day. And now your calls. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at rescue. I've recently become much more poly and been involved in the poly community here in my small 
mid-sized Midwestern town. Uh, it's a relatively small community, and a guy who recently entered into it, I've discovered, has been I see in some really narcissistic, really manipulative ways to, and really hateful ways to a couple of different women who are just starting to compare notes. My question is really this. When you're a member of this kind of a small group, when there's somebody who comes in and starts acting in bad faith, and you've got some empirical evidence and not just the opinions of exes, that this person is acting in really manipulative and toxic ways, do you have any responsibility to talk to the other people in your group or people who, and to kind of give people a heads up that, hey, Bob's a bit of a dick when it comes to this, or, you know, Sally tends to really use people or, or whatever. You got to look out for your friends. You got to give your friends a heads up. So you're totally within your rights. I think you're are actually responsible. You have a responsibility to say to people, you know, this is happening or this happened or this person did this, particularly when you have hard evidence. It's not just the bitter grousing perhaps of exes, although sometimes exes grouse bitterly because they have grounds because their ex is their ex because they did shitty things to them. So just because it's coming from an ex doesn't mean it should always be discounted. But if you know that somebody is behaving badly, particularly in a small community that has come together for the purposes of Enabling people to be their, each other's sex partners. Like one of the things that you're creating when you create a small BDSM community, a small swinger community, small polyamory community is that accountability, that, that kind of feedback that makes everybody in that little presumably to some extent vetted scene feel safe with the other people in that scene. And if somebody has entered that scene and is abusing people and is taking advantage of the space that has been created there, that, that little community that has come together to facilitate, whether it's kink or polyamory or swinging or whatever, if somebody enters into that space and takes advantage of it and, and abuses people, it's almost the way a body responds to a foreign invader or an infectious agent, that you need those white blood cells to kick in. You need that immune system response. And in a small kink community, small poly community, small swinging community, that immune system response is everybody – talking to each other and giving each other the heads up. And that person, if they're indeed toxic and shitty and it's not just the normal push-pull, sturm-drang drama of relationships and hurt feelings, that person needs to be exiled from that community for the safety of others in that community. That's what that community exists partly to do, to facilitate the exiling of those toxic types. So yeah, speak up. Give your friends a heads up. Give them a warning. That's what you are there for. That's why you're in that particular scene. That's what it came together to facilitate that kind of accountability and that kind of immune system response. Hey, Dan, just wanted to thank you for your political rants. You keep apologizing for them, but I appreciate them as a source of political education. I think we all know how you feel about the Republican candidate, but I would love to hear your thoughts on the Democratic side. I would appreciate knowing who you support and why. I'm all in for Martin O'Malley. No, I'm just kidding. I've got a Lincoln Chafee bumper sticker on my car. Haha, <laughs> no, not him either. Uh, I actually will spend a lot more time talking about the R's because the R's piss me off more than the Democrats. And I tend to talk about what pisses me off. Mike Huckabee, today, you are pissing me off with this we're rounding up Christians 
criminalizing Christianity in America because they threw Kim Davis in jail, not for being a Christian, not for opposing same-sex marriage. If those were the reasons we were throwing people in jail, Mike Huckabee yourself, you motherfucker, you would be in jail. She's in jail for disobeying a court order. She is in jail for not doing her fucking job, for contempt of court. That is why Kim Davis, as of this recording, is in jail. See, look, I can, I can talk and talk and talk about the Republican candidates and the shit that they are up to and involved in. I have a harder time talking about the Dems because I'm conflicted. If you could see my face right now, you would see me blinking out distress signals because if I say anything, I'm going to get in trouble at home. My husband was a big Hillary Clinton supporter in 2008, and he was a little miffed that I was an Obama supporter in 2008, and there's nothing Terry hates more than me winning. And so when Obama won, I won, and that still rankles Terry. He loves Obama. We've written checks to Obama that Terry signed, and uh, he voted for Obama happily, but he still carries in his soul a little – a little resentment and grief that his girl Hillary didn't go through in 2008. So I promised him that I would support Hillary this time out as payback because I want him to keep sucking my dick. And I am blinking the distress signal. That said, if you go to Slog, the stranger's blog, where I blog as much as I possibly can, you will see posts from a year ago and six months ago. Uh, I believe that I titled a series of posts, Run, Bernie, Run. And I posted several of Bernie's speeches before he was a candidate and I'm kind of into everything that Bernie has to say and I kind of love the way he says it and you know I'm for Hillary because I want my dick getting sucked when I go home tonight but I'm not against Bernie it's almost where I was in 2008 in 2008, when people would ask me if I was supporting Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, I would say, yes, I am for either or both. I would support them both on a ticket with, in either position on that ticket. And I feel like I'm in the same place now. Are you for Hillary Clinton or are you for Bernie Sanders? Yes, I am for either or both. And looking at the Republican field, the Democrats could nominate a broken VHS player, and I'm going to vote for it, over – any one of these fucking misogynistic, homophobic, racist fucking douchebags who are running for the Republican nomination right now. Hey, Dan. I'm a 32 male gay. So I, I was confronted by this guy online and uh, he said, hey, if you host, I would, I would like to meet up with you and hook up with you and um, I will pay you. Since I've been listening to your show, I'm like, okay, all right, is this, is this a fetish of yours? I'm like, you don't have to pay me. He's only two years older than me, really good-looking guy. He's in the closet. I don't really know what else is going on. But uh, anyway, he shows up. I didn't think that he was going to leave money. He ended up leaving money. He wanted the lights off, couldn't see anything. Uh, well, I, I did see him. I met him at the front door. And uh, yeah, damn good-looking guy. My, I'm trying to figure out, we did hook up, we wore protection, and but we did do oral. So I'm wondering if I, I, I mean, of course I should always like be testing myself and, and stuff if I'm like sexually active, but I'm wondering what do you think I should do about this situation? Should, should I continue to see this guy or not? Because I don't know. I, I, it just seems like the age difference is, I mean, it's only two years apart. 
I'm kind of confused right now. Um, I'd like some advice. My first bit of advice, if you're at all concerned about your health and safety, is to get on fucking Truveda. A new study just came out this week that shows – I'm just going to read the headline from the Washington Post. In new study, HIV prevention pill Truveda is 100% effective. Researchers are very startled by this evidence. Uh, half the guys in this study who are on Truveda weren't as conscientious about using condoms as they should have been. Half came down with other sexually transmitted infections and we should be concerned about those and we should be using condoms to protect ourselves from gonorrhea, chlamydia and syphilis as well, not just HIV. But clearly Truveda is insanely effective at preventing HIV infection if it is 100% effective even when half the guys in the study came down with other sexually transmitted infections. If you're at all concerned about oral when it comes to HIV or this kind of nearly anonymous hookup when it comes to HIV, get on fucking Truveda. This is no longer a subject of debate. This is now empirical fact. This is now science. You should be on Truveda. Okay, so what's up with this guy? I think you hit the nail on the head. This must be a fetish or control thing for him, uh, a kink that there's something about leaving the money, about not having to pay you with uh, affection or consideration uh, and being in the, the power position perhaps. You know, So many kinks, when you boil them down to their essence, there's some sort of power play at work and leaving you that money, perhaps it just makes him feel more in control of the sex. Perhaps it makes him feel like he can walk away without looking back because he doesn't have to pay you with dinner or niceness or a movie or questions about your day. He's going to pay you with cash and turn on his heel after he drains his sack and go. If you want to hook up with him again and it was fun and he was otherwise respectful and didn't take advantage of you, uh, didn't attempt to leverage the power that comes with paying you into trying to force you to do anything that you were not comfortable with, I don't see why you wouldn't want to hook up with this guy again. If you asked him, is this a fetish, is this a kink, and he didn't answer, maybe that being made explicit that for him this is just play at paying uh, kind of drains it for him, makes it less exciting, less sexy. And so perhaps – for his kink to fire on all cylinders, he needs to not have that explicitly stated. He doesn't want that on the table. But if you feel safe and if he's hot and if it's sexy and if you want the money and you don't feel diminished by it, enjoy. Hey, um, I am a 20-something college student. Um, I consider myself kind of bisexual. I have a problem with a roommate. She has told me that she's lesbian, which I'm totally fine with. And to be clear, we don't share rooms, but we share a bathroom. And um, you can easily get between rooms. Well, yesterday, she walked in my room completely naked, sat on my bed, and tried to touch me. And I kind of just laughed because I felt really uncomfortable. And she laughed and left. And this whole time, she's been very, like, comfortable with being naked in the bathroom, and it's not a big deal. But I'm really struggling with how to create boundaries without making her hate me because I have to live with this person for the next year. Any advice would be great. Um, she's also mentioned that people, like, you know, um, are homophobes and stuff like that, and I don't want to come across that way. But at the same time, I feel like there's a reasonable expectation to not have another girl naked on my bed. Stop being nice. Stop being nice to your manipulative, creepy roommate. 
let's pretend that this is a guy. Let's pretend that this is a cisgendered heterosexual male who strolled around your apartment naked knowing that, let's say, let's pretend that you're a lesbian, that you would never in a million years want to sleep with this person. And he strolls around your apartment naked and then one day enters your bedroom and sits on your bed naked and touches you. Would you have laughed that off? Maybe, maybe. There's a lot of women. Women are socialized to be deferential, to sometimes dump lubricant all over the grinding gears of an incredibly awkward or abusive or manipulative social situation to keep everybody happy and to just sort of jolly everything along. And you need to rip that out of your motherboard. You need to not do that. When she walked into your room naked, you needed to say, get out of my room. What are you doing? When she sat down on your bed, please, you're making me uncomfortable. Leave my room. Go put some clothes on. This is not okay with me. Period. The end. You need to establish boundaries and you can't as a sensitive, hand-wringy, straight ally of the LGBT community, allow yourself to be exploited by the occasional very shitty LGBT person who will use that pressure point to manipulate you. I don't want her to think I'm homophobic, so I am going to give her a pass to do something that I would not give a heterosexual a pass to do. Do you see what's happening there? Do you see how vulnerable you are in the face of that if you're so concerned with her accusing you of being homophobic that you don't defend yourself, that you can't establish clear boundaries, that you can't even have boundaries, lest you be accused of being homophobic by your boundaryless, naked, lesbian, creepo roommate. No, 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 no. Boundaries. Makes me uncomfortable when you walk around the apartment naked, but you know what? Shared spaces you can walk around naked. Makes me uncomfortable. Stay the fuck out of my room. When you're naked, not a shared space. Stay the fuck off my bed. Not a shared space. Keep your hands off me when I'm in bed and you're naked in my bed, which you shouldn't be in my room where you shouldn't be. And if she freaks out and accuses you of being a homophobe, you look at her and say, I would be saying all of this, the exact same things if you were straight. And I assume, Rumi, you would be saying the exact same things as a lesbian woman, if your straight male roommate pulled this shit on you. Stand up for yourself. Addendum, epilogue, postscript. Maybe I'm going too nuclear, right off the top, too confrontational, screaming and yelling. Maybe she's just fairy. Maybe she's just nudisty. Perhaps your first line of attack should be to say, ha ha, laugh, go ahead, laugh some more, but then say, are all lesbians like this? Or I didn't realize that I got a roommate off nudist.com or do I need to get a lock on my door? Cause when I'm alone, I'd like to be alone and then see what she says. Maybe she just doesn't get it. And maybe she doesn't need you to go postal on her. She just needs you to laughingly in a friendly way, make it clear what your boundaries and expectations are. And then if she continues to violate them, you can go postal me. I'd go postal out of the gate. We've talked a lot on the podcast over the years about decriminalizing sex work. I am pro-decriminalization, just laying my cards on the table. And this conversation was kicked back into gear recently by Amnesty International's recent decision to call for the decriminalization of sex work. Herman Lopez is a staff writer for Vox, the Explain the News news site founded by Ezra Klein. Lopez was inspired by the debate over Amnesty International's recent move to look at all the evidence for banning sex work. And he joins us by phone from Washington, D.C., Hey, uh, Herman, thanks for jumping on the phone. No problem. Glad to join you. So you that's what you guys do at Vox. You look at the data, you look at the research, so you dug into it, and what did you find? Well, I basically found 
two things. One, that the research on uh, like decriminalization and, and de- legalizing prostitution, the, the findings that are the best, like the best research done is very positive. It shows like a drop in STDs, um, a drop in, in like in public health problems, a drop in rapes in, in some cases, like in Rhode Island, they did a big study. Um, looking at when the state accidentally decriminalized prostitution, indoor prostitution. Wait, wait, how did the state of Rhode Island accidentally decriminalize indoor prostitution? It's kind of complicated, but in the 1980s, they changed the law, and until the 2000s, the courts didn't interpret the law to find that it actually decriminalized prostitution. Um, And then they took about five or six years to actually fix it. So for five or six years, it was decriminalize, even though that's not what legislators said they intended. And so that for me, that was one of the most fascinating parts of your piece. So there's this brief window in Rhode Island where indoor prostitution was decriminalized, it was legal, and there was a, a, a big drop in rape cases in Rhode Island during that time, 39% drop in reports of sexual abuse and rape. And then that was mirrored, you, you write later in the piece, in Holland where there was a 30 to 40% drop in cases of sexual abuse and rape when sex work was decriminalized there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's the most interesting is like in po- policy debate, it's one of the hardest things like getting like a random actual, like a random policy situation because you don't want to inflict random policy on like actual people that would obviously be unethical. But in Rhode Island, that's basically what happened. So it's like a very close to random trial and they got really promising results. This flies in the face of and, and can be a very explosive thing uh, to suggest to anyone. You know, the the argument is or what we're all supposed to ascribed to is that rape is about power, not about sex. But what we saw in Rhode Island, what we've seen in Holland, what we've seen in New Zealand, other places that have decriminalized sex work, is that when there is access to sex workers and it is decriminalized, that rape cases fall. So for some people, perhaps rape is about power, but for others, it seems that rape is about sex and access. And that if there is a route for people who might not be able to get laid otherwise, they're more likely to buy or less likely to rape if there is legal prostitution. And this is really hard to talk about for someone like me who's got a lot of friends who are sex workers. I don't want to say, hey, sociopaths and rapists, go visit my friends instead. Yeah. But that does seem to be what's happened. Yeah, and I mean, it's also suggested, it's very troubling, obviously, but it's also suggested in other research that has looked at the effect of, like, porn on on rape, and it does seem like, not obviously not as much as, like, the 39% drop in Rhode Island, but it does have some decreasing effect on on rape cases. That Those are the studies that have shown that as different states, internet pornography became more widely available, as states came online, uh, rape and sexual assault dropped state by state as different states came online which showed that some people who had been out raping were at home masturbating now because they had access to these kinds of images. It, it, yeah, it put, that's exactly it, right. It puts people who you know believe rape is only about power or that porn is the theory, rape is the practice into a difficult position because the empirical data would seem to suggest that rape isn't necessarily about power and that porn is not theory, rape is not the practice. What else did you find? You know, The, the major argument that people – make against decriminalizing sex work internationally or even in a locality is that sex trafficking will explode, that people will be coerced or, or moved across the world and, and forced into prostitution against their will. Did you find that there was research backing that up? Was there any evidence for that argument? 
No, and that's actually what most surprised me. I looked at the study cited by the, the letter that a bunch of celebrities sent to Amnesty telling them to like oppose decriminalization. And the, the biggest study cited in there, which is usually the biggest study thrown out there, was like really just very shoddy uh, research. I talked to some a researcher about it, and he said that the data was just not reliable. And then I talked to the researchers who actually did this study, and they told me that, yeah, the data they used isn't very reliable, but it's the best they have. Um, for example, they said that it doesn't actually me- measure the, the flows of human trafficking, which if you're looking at how much human trafficking there is, uh, if you don't know the actual flows, like how many people are actually being trafficked, then you don't really know what you're looking at at all. Like it, there's there's no really good data to to find anything conclusive in there. Did you have a position on decriminalization when you first began to dig into the to the research and the data? No, not really. I mean, I knew both sides of the debate, but until I started actually looking at this, I didn't have any strong positions. And when I looked at it, I saw that this data was just so bad that the research was so bad uh, on the anti-decriminalization side and that the research was so good on the pro-decriminalization side that it, it changed my mind. Was the research on the pro-decriminalization side biased? Is that why it was showing evidence that we should decriminalize? There's there's no really no sign of that happening. The the researchers that did like the Netherlands study and then the Rhode Island study, they were completely unaware of each other's like existence or anything like that. They were both conducting these studies simultaneously. Yet they found almost they found I mean they found basically the exact same things with STDs and rape cases dropping. Mm-hmm. So that that suggests to me that no, there there's not really any bias there. That that they just happen to find good results and they're very similar. Why it seems to me that there is a bias out there in favor of research that tells everybody what we wish was you know tells most people what they wish was true about sex work that you know our anti sex work sex phobic bias causes people not to examine closely the data because the data isn't going to bear out the bias around sex work that it's terrible and should be criminalized for the protection of sex workers themselves. And yeah. how, how do you push back against that when it's not that there's a, you know, a bias in the data, but there's a bias in most people as they approach the data and they will look at the data, you know, that confirmation bias bullshit. They'll look at the stuff that supports their, the position they came with and they're going to discount any evidence to the contrary because they can't let go of mm-hmm. their own biases yeah, well, their positions. That- that that's actually one thing that like if you're a researcher and you're looking at like the human trafficking data and like the the study I mentioned earlier like the big anti decriminalization study it uses a UN data source that basically tells you not to use it to make sweeping conclusions because the data like it admits the UN sources admits that it's too bad of data and yet people use it anyway and that like leads me to believe that these researchers went in there wanting to find something. I'm not sure if they wanted to find something at the decriminalization, but they wanted to find something. And, and so they just kept going on with this data that just wasn't good. Herman Lopez, he writes for Vox. The piece is called, I looked at the best evidence for banning prostitution. It's absolutely terrible. And you can find it at Vox.com. And you should be following him on Twitter as I am now at Herman R. Lopez. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. All right. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Hey, Dan, this is actually not a sex question. It's a political question. Um, I'm a late 20s married lesbian living in a large East Coast city. Um, My family lives in a large West Coast city. And I have a great relationship with my immediate family, my mom, my nieces. They are my sister's kids. My sister passed away when I was in high school. um, And my nieces are close to me in age, so we've always been very close. 
And I'm also close with my dad most of the time. <laughs> my extended family is another story. A lot of them have drug and alcohol dependencies, which run very heavily in my family. And they also can be very ignorant and bigoted. Generally, they've always treated me with love and respect, but over the last few years, a really uncomfortable rift has formed between us. I think my progressive views, and, and I'm so sorry to use this term, but I do so with serious quotes, progressive lifestyle, I just don't think it meshes with their transphobia, their fear of illegal immigrants, and their belief that Barack Obama is some sort of antichrist. It's especially prevalent on Facebook. My wife and I plan to move back to this West Coast city by the end of the year. Is there any way for me to learn to get along and enjoy my extended family? And is it even worth it? Your dilemma reminds me why I'm glad I'm not on Facebook. I don't want to be privy to the innermost thoughts or political opinions of everyone I happen to be related to. And a shout out to all my relatives and my extended family who listen to the show. Uh, hope you're all doing well. Hope to see you again sometime soon. Still not on Facebook. Look, unfollow them, block them, mute them. Uh, you know, we don't have to agree with our relatives. Relatives, you know, they're, they're the people we're kind of stuck with. And that that can be beautiful. And sometimes that can be transformative. You know, you're stuck with your relatives and so in the way that people sort themselves now along their political beliefs and their religious beliefs, people will cut out of their lives, coworkers, neighbors, friends uh, that they disagree with about profound fundamental issues like immigration. And it's not as easy to dismiss or cut out uh, a relative in the way you might dismiss or cut out somebody that you disagree with about X, Y, or Z issues who happens to be a coworker or a neighbor or somebody sitting next to you on an airplane. So sometimes we will hear out Aunt Martha who disagrees with us about whatever and we will listen to her respectfully because we got to keep the peace because we're all going to be thrown together again in the future because if we blow up at Aunt Martha, then mom's going to have a fucking shit fit at us about the conflict that we created. So we find sometimes ways with our relatives to disagree and argue about political things that are difficult or challenging more politely than we disagree or argue with other people. And wouldn't it be lovely if that kind of rose up through the culture, if we could disagree and argue about shit more politely? It would put me out of business and a lot of people would like that. But maybe it would be good. So I don't know where I am on this except you go argue with your relatives and I'm going to keep my ass off Facebook. You don't have to follow them. As I understand from people who are on Facebook, it's possible to put people in a little box on Facebook where you don't have to see their posts anymore. That too is an option. So you don't have to provoke them by unfollowing them. You can just build a wall around them like they're Mexico. Okay, so that's Facebook. What do you do about living in the same place with these people in the same town? Well, if it's not a town of 50 people, how often do you see your extended family this seems more like a problem because you're rushing at it, less like a problem that has actually visited itself upon you. If you don't care for your relatives, you don't like your relatives, you don't see eye to eye with your relatives, if you find hanging out with them unpleasant because they can't stop ranting about the queers or the trans people or the immigrants or the whatever, don't see them. Remember what Armistead Maupin said, there is your biological family and then there is your logical family. Maybe there's some overlap. And your biologicals are also your logicals. But if your biological family members aren't your logical family members, you don't have to have them in your family. You can create a family for yourself that makes sense logically. 
So be polite, see them, be friendly. If there's an event and the family's all going and they invite you, maybe drop by. But you don't have to see them once a week. You don't have to have them to dinner at your house. You don't have to give your crazy bigoted uncle a key to your apartment or anything else. Hi, Dan. I'm a 48-year-old woman, um, and I recently had to break up a relationship with a border protection, a restraining order. Um, it was an almost three-year uh, cyclical DV breakup, get back together again, break up, get back together again. It finally ended in uh, a horrible way with me going to the court to get an order of protection. Fast forward about six weeks, and a friend of mine told me that she wanted to hook me up with her brother, and we went out on a date and uh, had a really nice time. And I'd like to really go slow, and I'd really like to get to know him and see how it goes. Anyways, do I need to tell him that I have an order of protection against this guy? Whenever I've tried to break up with the guy I have the order against, he always goes bananas, psycho bananas, whenever there's any hint that I've dated anybody, been with anybody, just psycho. So um, he's been good about staying away, hasn't made any contact, but I'm just not really sure if I need to tell this new guy about the crazy old guy that there's an order of protection against. I do think you should tell the new guy about the crazy old guy. What you shouldn't do is tell the crazy old guy about the crazy new guy. I'm sorry that you're going through this. You you rushed past DV. You mentioned that there was DV, domestic violence. I am sorry that you were abused at the hands of this crazy person. And I'm sorry that that obligates you in a way to give a heads up to this new person. It really does. Because if you think that there's a chance that this crazy person may come after your new boyfriend, if indeed you become girlfriend-boyfriend, that may be information that he's entitled to. That may be information that you would want to share with him even if you didn't feel he's entitled to it because if you cared about him, you wouldn't want to see him harmed. You would want to give him that heads up, that warning that there's this crazy person rattling around out there. Might be a good idea and I hate this, right? You ended an abusive relationship. You got a restraining order. You were the victim of some form of domestic violence and – it's terrible that he gets to run around in the world and you have to play defense. But it may be a good idea for you not to put all over social media pictures on Instagram or Twitter or your Facebook profile images of your new boyfriend or images of you with your new boyfriend or links to your new boyfriend's accounts or anything until this guy is well and thoroughly out of your life and over you. And I hope that he is well and thoroughly out of your life and over you soon so that you don't have to weigh your choices and your actions and what you have to tell to someone that you're dating now so that you don't have to continue to weigh what you're doing and who you're with and what your online presence is against the potential threat that this guy, your ex, represents. I'm sorry that you're in this position. And I do think that you really ought to give this guy, your friend's brother, a heads up. And this is one of those cases. This is one of those instances where you're going to tell somebody one thing about you and they're going to tell you in their response a whole lot about them. It's like telling somebody of HIV, telling somebody you have a kink, telling someone you're poly, one thing about you. Their reaction can tell you everything that you need to know about them. If he freaks out, if he blames you, if he responds with anything other than concern, if he regards you as anything other than the victim here, He's told you a lot, including that you really shouldn't be dating him either. Hey, Dan. I have a question about dating etiquette. I was listening to episode 89, and a caller 
who went out on a date with a guy, uh, decided she wasn't interested in him after the date, but didn't tell him. I think you gave great advice on this. She ignored his relentless attempts to contact her. You told her to just, if she wasn't interested, just tell him. And I think that's what girls should do. But it also sounded like he paid for dinner. So I was wondering, if a girl wasn't interested in a guy, should she allow him to pay for dinner? Uh, Is that good dating etiquette? I don't know if it's good dating etiquette, but it might be good sense, considering that so many straight men seem to think that a woman who's allowed them to pay for dinner is obligated to fuck them. A woman can sidestep that sense of entitlement by not allowing him to pay for dinner if she isn't interested or if she isn't sure yet that she's interested or not. However, the convention is that if somebody has asked somebody out on a formal date, that that person is going to pick up the tab, that it's on them. I'm asking you out to dinner, on me. That's, that is the social convention. And if at the end of the, the meal, she's determined that this is somebody she would never want to fuck and doesn't want to see again, she could speak up. She could insist on paying half the bill. And then men would be angry about that too. Right? Then she's a bitch because she's basically dumping him by putting her credit card down on the check at the same time. And that just seems cruel. And as with most dating etiquette rules about how women are supposed to behave, how women are supposed to interact with men and treat them, it just seems like there's no win here. It's a lose, 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 lose scenario constantly for her. If she lets him pay, she has to fuck him. If she lets him pay, she's telling him, that she wants to fuck him or even wants to see him again. If she refuses to let him pay, then she's a castrating bitch who embarrassed and humiliated him at the end of the meal. I don't think she can win. So I think what we have to go with here is the person who made the invitation pays because of the conventions, the gendered conventions of heterosexual romance. It's almost always the man who asks, who makes the invite. And so it's almost always going to be the man who pays And then she gets to decide if she wants to see him again. And I think in our more egalitarian world that there should be a taking of turns that if he asked her out and he paid the first time and she wants to see him again, even if he asks her out the second time, I think it's a good idea if she picks up the check the second time. But what do I know? I'm a feminist. Hey, Dan and the tech savvy at risk use. I've got a question. Uh, You often say that oral sex comes standard within a relationship. And I was wondering if you would still say that it applies to my relationship with my girlfriend. We've been together for a year and a half, and I don't give her oral sex very often. And that's for a few reasons. Number one is that she doesn't really complain about not getting oral sex very often. And I think that's because that when we do have sex, she comes at least twice, sometimes three times very often. It's rare that she comes only one time. You often say that uh, girls or 75% of women require clitoral stimulation to orgasm, which means that 25% of uh, women can uh, orgasm through vaginal stimulation alone, which is a pretty large portion of the population. And my girlfriend happens happens to be a part of that population. So whenever we have sex, she always comes often, right? She always comes. Reason number two is that when I used to give her oral regularly, she would stop me before she would come, and then we would start fucking, and then she would come. She 
she wouldn't really let me bring her to climax through oral stimulation. Like she'd get too, ex- she'd get too um, excited from it. And then we would start to fuck. And then reason number three is that I don't particularly like her taste. And I actually feel bad about that because when it came to my ex-girlfriends and my one-night stands, with them across the board, I was either excited to give them oral because of their taste or I was just neutral on their taste. And she's the only girl that I have actively disliked her taste. And so I guess it's with those reasons, you know, cumulatively, that I don't particularly like giving her oral, even though I used to get excited for giving other girls oral. So am I, I guess, violating the GGG rules of, you know, not, not giving her oral when it should come standard? Am I an asshole or could I be doing better? I think this is a conversation you need to have with your girlfriend, not with your snarky sex advice podcast fag host. If in the past when you did make with the oral, when you did go down with her and she always pivoted or directed you to commence intercourse, that the orgasm that she preferred, you can infer from her actions, the orgasms that she gets during penetrative vaginal intercourse, which is a superpower. Only 25-ish percent of women can come from being fucked alone. Most women require more focused, direct clitoral stimulation in order to climax, but significant minority of women can come just from that. And if that's her preferred mode of orgasm, if that's how she likes to get off and she feels in no way deprived because you aren't going down on her anymore, that would relieve you from the GGG oral come standard obligation to make with the oral. So have that conversation with her. Now, when it comes to her taste, that can be a chemical thing. You know, I think it's a good idea to partner with someone whose taste you enjoy, the taste of their saliva, the taste of basically everything that comes out of them, their their breath, their sweat, everything but their poop. You're going to be ingesting a lot of it and smelling a lot of it. It helps, I think, to be with somebody who you kind of gel with on that pheromone chemical level where you like how they taste and you want to taste them. It is fraught to discuss with a woman if she tastes funny or smells bad because there's so much misogyny and bullshit that's been heaped on women about their bodies, about their vaginas over the millennia, right? Unclean going all the way back, all the way back to Eve. So discussing it can be difficult, but When you can get your nose places that your partner cannot, sometimes you are obligated to speak up. It's not as fraught for a woman whose boyfriend wants a blowjob to say, oh my God, you stink. Go jump in the shower and I will suck your dick. It can be a little more fraught for a guy to say, I would go down on you, but something smells off or tastes off. If you determine that it's not you, you like eating pussy. If you determine that it's not a chemical issue because – you actually chemically, ferrum level, you actually dig them, dig their scent, dig their smells, dig their tastes. It could be a medical issue. It could be an undiagnosed, untreated, sexually transmitted infection that she is unaware of. It can even, a vaginal odor or a bad taste, it can be related to cervical cancer. And so as difficult as that conversation can be to have, and this is not so much advice for the caller, just advice generally, Sometimes guys and girls, you got to speak up. You got to say, I know this is hard to hear and it's hard to say, and I don't want you to be angry at me, but I would rather risk your anger than your health. So 
think you should make an appointment for the gyno and get this checked out because I want you to be healthy and I want my face to be buried in your lap. And that is the loving, risky thing to do. You have to preface those kinds of statements though with, I am aware of the cultural baggage. I am aware that this comes bound up with misogyny and, and gynophobia and all the rest of that crap. And that's not what I'm saying. I love your pussy. Love putting my face in your pussy. I want your pussy to be healthy. I want you to be healthy. So time for a gyno. If you've been following the news and certainly if you follow me on Twitter, you've been reading about and hearing about the Department of Homeland Security's raid on the offices of RentBoy.com. RentBoy.com is a website where people who are male sex workers could advertise uh, for male clients. And the Department of Homeland Security shut the site down. And we haven't talked about it. I didn't rant about it at the top of the podcast. It was very rant worthy. But I didn't get to it, and I wanted to talk about it. But rather than just talk about it myself, I have a guest today, Dirk Kaber, a gay adult film actor, Dirk Kaber. You can find his blog where he wrote a really impassioned and really informed and really smart post about the rentboy.com raid at dirkkaber.com. That's D-I-R. That's D-I-R-K-C-A-B-E-R.com. And he joins us by phone. Hey Dirk, how you doing? Doing really well, Dan. How are you? Good. So for listeners out there who aren't up to speed on rentboy.com, who may not have heard about it, who've been living under a rock or just focused on Kim Davis down there in Kentucky, give us the the short version of what Rentboy was and what just happened to Rentboy. Uh, Rentboy was a was a website that offered a place for men to meet other men, um, often with a financial exchange. The, the loophole behind this was that people would be paying for the escort's time. That is an escort and not a prostitute, after all. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens in that time is, of course, between two consenting adults. And perhaps there is some expectation that sex may happen. Um, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but that's not what the money's being exchanged for. The, all the website really was was a means of these people managing to find each other, like a dating site would work for other people. And there is a raid. The, the feds have shut rentboy.com down. They have. And arrested the owner and six other employees uh, who are all now out on bail, but they face criminal charges around facilitating prostitution. And if you read the actual indictment, it is so obnoxiously purient. It is so homophobic. It is so – it's like something from the 50s. You have these prosecutors going on about how you know going to Rent Boy, they heard of these things called slings and twinks and – it's just the description of twinks was particularly offensive. <laughs> well, it kind of it kind of made me, you know, I, I got a little chub reading their description of twinks. Right, right. It, it's just so purient. And you wrote this terrific essay unpacking what is wrong with shutting down rentboy.com. Uh, you know, prostitution is illegal. This conceit that, you know, we're all escorts here, it's just about time. Um you know, people typically tend to see through that. I don't think anyone's pretending it's anything more than a legal loophole. A, a legal loophole. And, and a lot of the ads on Rent Boy, and I've written about Rent Boy in the past. I've had uh, people from Rent Boy in my column as Gex experts talking about escorting. Uh, you know, a lot of it was really explicit. It was, this is who I am and this is what I will do. And what they were doing wasn't spending time with you. What they were doing, you know, what they listed were sex acts. So it was pretty right. explicit that. The, the understanding was, the assumption was that if you book time with these guys via Rent Boy, that sex was going to happen. It, it, I'm sure the understanding is there. It, it's the way it's set up. It is sort of the, you know, the, the understanding. The, um, the legal, of course, the disclaimer that they make is that's not the way the transaction will ever be transpired. On the other hand, it's 
what happens between two people as consenting adults. Why does it matter if, in fact, there was an exchange of cash for it anyway? It's crazy that it's, it's, it's illegal to pay someone to have sex with you unless you're making a porn film. If you put a camera on the other side of the room and everybody signs porn releases, you can pay someone to have sex with you. Exactly right. And and why, what the distinction is there, I'm not really quite sure. There is um, legislation in California that, that uh, exempts from prostitution uh, uh, performances of, a, of an entertainment nature. So you, you talk in your piece about how you've used Rent Boy and how other people have used Rent Boy and why shutting down a website like Rent Boy is going to hurt people who are doing sex work. Because the whole rationale behind going after sites like uh, my Red Book and Rent Boy is we have to protect these sex workers from the sex work that they're doing. That this is about rescuing, you know, vulnerable people who are being exploited. And you really dismantled that argument in your essay. And I just want to say dismantle it here now for us go it's just the fact that there's nothing that's particularly wrong with having sex it's part of our nature it's part of what we need to be healthy it's part of who we are as humans and men and women of course because this affects them as well in some extent the truth of the matter is though that this provided a place for these sorts of meetings to be set up legitimately in a way that there's some sense of uh, a paper trail that you know if somebody goes missing or if somebody's abused or somebody gets hurt um be that the client or the escort um there's a way for you know say law enforcement if it comes down to that to be able to trace it back find out who did this who did what in the older days before there were things like rent boy when you were setting up uh, adverts, say, in the back of the newspaper or on Craigslist, ultimately, or something like that. There was no such you – know, there was much less ability to be able to trace these things down. Mm-hmm. It was a much more dangerous world. So Red Boy made doing sex work safer for the guys who were doing sex work. Exactly right. And yet and they f- argue that they have to shut Red Boy down to protect people who are doing sex work from the sex work that they're going to be doing anyway. There's some notion that somehow those of us who do sex work are forced into sex work, that somebody out there has put a gun to our heads and said, no, you will bend over and let this person that you don't like fuck you up the ass. Mm -hmm. It's not the way it works. It's those of us who've gone into it, have gone into it with our eyes open for the most part. We know exactly what we're getting into. We understand that this is not necessarily our career that's going to take us to retirement or anything like that. And the vast majority of the guys that I know who do this are able to take this and use it as a tool to build the rest of their life using resources that the rest of the world may have and they don't. Now, there are some people who are forced into sex work. That does happen. I'm sure that does happen. But it doesn't, it doesn't help you to find and protect those people or rescue those people if you treat all people doing sex work as if they've been forced into it. The fact that slavery happens, whatever you made those slaves do, if, if people on, nowadays were to look at any sort of thing that was done with slaves back in the 19th century and say, well, you can't do that at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Nobody can pick cotton. Nobody can um, uh, uh, you know, take care of the lady's household or whatever. Um, you're demonizing entirely the wrong thing. What you need to demonize are the human traffickers. Mm-hmm. People who actually put people in these positions without any sort of remuneration or, or uh, recourse to move on if they want to. Now, one of the things I think informs a lot of you know, the reactions of people who haven't done sex work or are not sex workers or have never employed a sex worker are these misconceptions about who sex workers are and what sex work is like. Like I think some people hear about Rent Boy. They hear about uh, escorting or prostitution and they think – 
oh my God, that I could never do that. That sounds awful. Why would anyone ever want to do that? And then when something like Rent Boy gets shut down, when there's a raid like this, when people get arrested, when Johns get busted, they think, yeah, probably for the best, because why would anyone ever want to do that squalid, disgusting, dehumanizing thing? As someone who's done sex work, would you please talk about the reality of it for people who are not familiar with the reality of it, people who haven't employed a sex worker or ever done sex work, who rattle around with these misconceptions about what the experience is actually like. Let me just start with the most basic reason to do it is the fact that return for an hour of work to cash is actually very high. Now, of course, there are a lot of things you have to do to make yourself presentable and attractive and all that stuff to a, to a potential client. Um, go to the gym and, and eat right and all this other stuff too. So somewhere along the line, all that money becomes justified. The biggest reason that I found to do, that to justify its existence, though, is that human sexuality, human affection, physical affection is something that we all need. We all have to have. We all thrive on being hugged by somebody, being assured that we're, we're loved, that we're lovable, that we're fuckable, whatever. For many of us who, you know, work out hard and, and are, you know, have the luxury of being able to get to the gym and, um, and live in a good urban area and don't have a job that completely overwhelms us and whatever else, we have the resource to be able to find a partner or a boyfriend or a regular fuck bud or a friend or whatever who can take care of that. There are men out there who do not have this resource. Um, they, they are either too busy. Um, they're not certain of their attractiveness enough to be able to attract, attract a mate. I've often found that's completely uh, uh, a hangup. It's in their heads. It's a, exactly right. It's 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 a, it's a it's a hesitation on their part. It's a lack of confidence, mm -hmm. which plagues us as a community anyway. And half the time when you go in, it's a case of hearing these people's problems, letting them talk, letting them hold you, holding them. But but we'll so you know some I, I can hear what some objections from people out there who aren't familiar with sex work might be making. Well, you know if what the need that's being met is this need for affection, this need for affirmation. How much affection can you possibly feel, and how much how affirmed can you possibly feel if you're having to pay that person for their time and attention? And yet we have no problem sending people to therapists, people who are licensed to listen to your listen to your problems and diagnose you. You're basically paying somebody to be your friend a lot of the time. In that mm -hmm. case, is that somehow less? less important, less useful. And an escort is a therapist who's your friend with his pants off. Well, exactly. And I mean, there are things which obviously a licensed therapist can't address in terms of um, a client's needs. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where we do sort of fit in. Nobody chooses, I think, to go into sex work, or very few people do. Let's put it that way. It is something that people tend to come to as a point of necessity. I draw a parallel with me playing tuba. Nobody ever plays tuba in high school. Tuba gets thrust on you by the band director. <laughs> I just happened to fall in love with it once I actually started playing it. Uh -huh. Sex work is the same sort of thing. People start it with whatever hesitation they may have or not. Because they frankly need a job of some sort. They need income. They need to be able to pay rent. For younger people with less resource, or say they're in school full time. Or they're in dire straits. There are young people who've been thrown out by their parents because they're outed as gay. And it would be wonderful if we lived in a society where there was a guaranteed minimum income and no one who didn't want to do sex work of their own free will because they enjoyed the idea of being a sex worker felt that they had no other options but sex work. But there are people out there who this is their only option. That's correct. That is correct. And, and we and just made that option that you may disapprove of or someone may disapprove of more dangerous. By not providing a safe place for this to happen in. That's correct. 
One of the most hilarious things that the Fed said when they shut down Rent Boy, one of the things they said that Rent Boy was doing was it was facilitating sex work while cutting out the middleman. And typically the middleman in sex work, had, there's a name for that, pimp. And I don't mm-hmm. like to use pimp because, you know, you say that word and people – I think it has such to, connotations. Right. And people have – I think it conjures up racist images in people's heads when they hear the word pimp. But the middleman, that's the pimp in sex work. And we're constantly told that one of the reasons we need to stop sex work, one of the reasons it needs to remain prohibited is because pimps are so exploitative and abusive and sex workers have to be protected from pimps and rescued from pimps. And here's a website that the federal government, the Department of Homeland Security acknowledges cut out of – Sex work, that middleman, that it took pimps out of it and therefore, obviously by inference, it made sex work safer and so we're going to shut it down. One of the things they said Rent Boy was doing that was so terrible was eliminating pimps. And I also hear the argument then that that sort of makes Rent Boy the pimp, that, you know, as I say, the person who sort of sets up the agreement. And the, the problem with that argument is that but part of the point of having a pimp, if you were, say, a female prostitute, say, 100 years ago or something like that, was to find somebody who was going to protect you from law enforcement, protect you from, from abusive johns, that sort of thing. This poor, sort of person gave you some extra strength socially in a world which was really out to get you in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. The problem is that put the pimp in a position of power. And I'm sure there were tons of really awesome pimps and madams and so forth out there who took really great care of, the, of their of their uh, wards. But um, of course, there, you get one or two, and they give the whole the whole field a bad name and a bad reputation. So you're tapped into the gay porn star community, the, the male sex worker community. How has the Rent Boy raid and the, the shutting down of RentBoy.com impacted the sex workers that you know? Within porn, I mean, there is no career in porn, really. You can't make enough money doing the filming. So no porn star that I know doesn't have a day job. For many of them, of course, that day job is escorting. As a result, whether we in the porn industry actually do this work ourselves or not, mm-hmm. we all have a ton of friends who rely on this for their living. Perhaps they're putting themselves through school or or trying to figure out what to do next with their life after they do porn because you have to understand that porn isn't forever. It's a few years at most. You have to have an out plan and you have to be able to finance that out plan. And oftentimes, this is the most expedient way of going about it. Rip that out from under them and you have a whole slew of people who are then stuck in the system where, where, where we are that we're trying to move past. That you, all of a sudden the, the means to the end has simply become the end. That's crazy. You, you know, what, what you're basically saying is what everybody who opposes sex work says that they want, which is for people to stop doing sex work and start doing something else, that allowing people for this time in their life to do the sex work that can be very uh, financially uh, beneficial to them, they can make a lot of money, that that is what can facilitate them getting out of sex work and doing something else. That's precisely right. So pulling that away from them isn't going to make them stop doing sex work. It's just going to make the sex work that they're doing harder to do and perhaps more dangerous to do if they're going on Craigslist or they're doing – if they successfully drive all – sex work offline going back to what walking the street that was not safe well that's just it is is it drives it all back underground and in the meantime this also confirms society's impression that sex workers are depraved and lazy and um drug riddled and uh, uh disease ridden and so forth um because all of a sudden they're forced further into hiding this is like you know gay people being in the closet ages ago that everyone thought gay people were disgusting because they didn't really know any they did know any they just didn't know they know them 
And the same thing with sex workers. Exactly. There's a lot of people out there who know sex workers, but they just don't know they know them. Precisely right. And I, the number of people who are shocked, I mean, of course, this has blown my, uh, blown me way out of the closet as, a, as, a, as an escort, <laughs> um, in a big way. And so, hi, mom. I hope, I hope your mom's a listener. I hope your mom's a listener of the Savage Podcast. You never know. I still even now have a knee jerk reaction. My partner, Jesse Jackman, um, in the locker room the other day suddenly started talking about uh, a potential client I had or something like that. And my first initial reaction was to look around and see who was within earshot. And, It's the sort of thing where we need to try to move past that inherent degree of embarrassment with the sort of work, both on the level of the people who do it and the people who are out there decrying it. The one thing I have yet to see from anybody is an actual reasoned justification as to what exactly is illegal about sex once you're accepting cash for it. And until we get past that, until we get past the societal stigma of it, we're never going to see the end of that. And the only way to get past the societal stigma of it is simply to be open about the fact that it happens and it happens well and it doesn't hurt anything. And sustaining the stigma doesn't prevent people from doing sex work. We have had the stigma, we've had prohibition, and people still do sex work and will continue to do sex work. They call it the world's oldest profession for all sorts of reasons. And shutting down Rent Boy didn't stop people from being escorts or booking time with escorts and it hasn't made escorting safer for escorts and it hasn't made it any harder for clients to arrange to see escorts. Dirk Kaber, adult film actor and escort. You can read his blog at DirkKaber.com where he is following and writing about the rentboy.com raid and its fallout. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. Um, I have a question about my husband and me. So we're, um, we're both in our 30s. And he really likes tickling me. Um, and I, I don't know if it's like a flirting thing that, cause it like starts off kind of innocently and then he really gets going. But for whatever reason, he re- he really, really likes it. It's like the, the best sex we have for him, I think, comes after he's started tickling me. The problem is I don't like being tickled very much. Um, it's borderline squigs me out a little bit. Um, this like this tickling that he gets so into and I kind of don't know what to do because what I, I could, I could never do it again and I would be happy, but he really likes it. Um, like the sounds he's making and this is like, they don't come any other time. He's, he's really into it. So is this a case where I am a good wife who, loves him very much and loves him him having awesome sex and so we'll kind of take a deep breath and put up with it every once in a while or do I say something I just um I know him and I know that if I talked about it even in a way that would be like maybe we can ease up on this thing um that would be it it would it would kill it so I don't think there's a great medium between me bringing it up and it never happening again or me just kind of doing it. So I'm wondering what you think. This isn't a flirting thing. And it's not a coincidence that you guys have the best sex we have. I'm quoting you the best sex we have for him. You quickly qualified that it's the best sex we have for him, which means it's not the best sex for you because the prologue is this unpleasant for you tickling scene, but it ain't a flirting thing. It's a fetish thing. It's a full blown kink. Google it. Tickling fetish. It's actually a thing. 
Uh, and it's for someone who doesn't enjoy being on the receiving end of it, it's going to be uh, – can be an unpleasant thing, a really unpleasant thing. There are people out there who have biting fetishes, spanking fetishes and it behooves them to find partners who share those fetishes because if you're really into intense spanking or intense tickling, that's not something that a GGG partner can necessarily do for you without really signing up for sex that is for them – unpleasant sex that they will come to dread over time. All that said, uh, there's this gay couple I actually met in Denver, Colorado, young gay couple, cute gay couple. One of them was a tickling fetish. The other wasn't. They came up to me at an event. I gave them advice and I heard back from them a a year later that it fucking worked. So I'm going to give it to you, which was they had four poker chips and they were on the nightstand on the side of the bed of the tickle fetish dude. And when they had tickle sex, one of those poker chips went on to the other nightstand and He had four. So there could be four tickle things happening in one month. At the end of the month, the chits went back. If in that month's time, all four chits didn't move over, those points didn't roll over like some digital phone plan. That he had four chances that month. If he used them up, no more chances that month. If he didn't use them up, that didn't mean he got to tickle eight times in the next month. And it worked for them. Because it put a lid on it. It put a cap on it. It also made it kind of a a playful game and an acknowledgement that this was something that the non-tickle fetish partner was willing to do in a limited way and occasionally for the other partner's pleasure, for the tickle fetish partner's pleasure, but not something that the non-tickle guy would have to do every time they fucking had sex, right? So there was a limit. It, however, they, they could only arrive at this kind of workable solution with the poker chips flying back and forth. Because they acknowledged, they could acknowledge to each other that this was your thing that you enjoy very much, but it's not my thing and it's not a thing that I enjoy as much or really at all. But I enjoy your enjoyment and I'm willing to go there for you. I'm willing to indulge, willing to be GGG. I'm concerned about how you fix this problem in your sex life if you're married to someone that you can't give feedback to about what works for you and what doesn't work for you. That's not a sex life. That's kind of a hostage situation. If your husband has presented his erotics, his sex life, his, his ability to be sexual or enjoy sex framed around any criticism, any feedback that isn't a hundred percent affirming is going to ruin it for me, whatever it is that puts you under a lot of pressure to, do things you might not enjoy to endure, to put up with, and you shouldn't have to do that. You're allowed to have tastes and preferences. You're allowed to like some things more than you like other things. You can assure him that tickling you can take every once in a while and you really love the sex you guys have in the wake of the tickling. So there's something in it for you in the end, but you shouldn't have to tell him. You shouldn't have to let him think that the tickling itself is something that you love. If it's not something that, leaves you traumatized, if it's not something that induces symptoms of PTSD, if it's not triggering for you, you can go there. You can do that for him. You shouldn't do it if it's any of those things that I just rattled off. But he should know that he's being indulged, just like the spanking fetishist whose partner can take or leave spanking and lets them spank them every once in a while and maybe gets into it because their partner's so excited. But if they weren't with the spanking fetishist, they would not be into spanking, not be doing spanking, not be getting spanked in an erotic context ever. And the partner, the spanking fetishist in that case, should be up for that, should be grateful for that. 
and should, instead of thinking, oh, I'm spanking them and they don't really like spanking, be thinking, I'm spanking them and it turns me on and they're turned on by how turned on I am by what we're doing. And that's the trick your husband needs to play in his head if you agree to do this. You have to say, though, you have to be able to give him feedback. You have to be able to tell him that his tickling fetish is his. The sex you have after is yours too and you love it. And I think you need to put that on the table and you need to say that because you don't want this to spread. You don't want what is right now an occasional thing to become something that he needs and relies on every time you have sex. And the time to give him that kind of feedback is before that happens, is now. So talk to the husband, maybe get the poker chips and say, not all of your things are going to be all my things and vice versa, but I want to indulge you in your things. But can't do this thing every single time. And you shouldn't say that to him as if he is doing it every single time because he's not. But you want to get out in front of that. So feedback. Talk, talk, talk. And if it ruins it for him, that's his problem. Because you're willing to go there with him, for him, and for the sex you have after it. But if he's so insecure, immature, that you putting it out there that tickling isn't your favorite thing – Ruins tickling for him, then he deserves to have tickling ruined for him. Hi, this is a comment about the woman on your last episode um, who talked about problems with anal sex. So she started off by saying that her boyfriend performed anal sex on her without any kind of notice. And uh, I want to make something really explicit about this, that this is a description of rape. And I'm not saying that consent always needs to be verbal, um, but there has to be some kind of communication or understanding it makes it clear that your partner wants to do what you want to do. Um, and there are actually a lot of nonverbal ways to do this also. But this woman didn't have any opportunity to either agree or disagree um, with what was about to be done to her. And um, that's not okay. It's, I think it's important that sexual violence needs to be recognized for, for what it is and not just kind of glossed over as some kind of misunderstanding. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the 23-year-old woman from episode 462 who is asking about anal. Your call made me so incredibly sad and reminded me of a similar time in my life when I was younger. You told Dan that he couldn't say, dump that motherfucking asshole, but you didn't restrict us listeners. Your boyfriend's behavior is abusive, and him slipping it in your ass without warning is non-consensual and straight-up assault. A loving partner would never treat you in this hurtful and abusive manner. So now I'll say it. Dump that motherfucking asshole. Get rid of him and you'll find a kind, hot, and respectful man who makes you feel great and you can enjoy a consensual and satisfying sex life with. I dumped the motherfucker in my life three years ago and am now engaged to the man of my dreams who respects and adores me. You can do the same. Take care of yourself and dump the abusive asshole. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 462 and the woman with the boyfriend who anally assaulted her. I wanted to tell her that uh, I, too, used to experience stomach aches while trying anal sex. However, different positions and different things, masturbation while doing anal led to a pleasurable thing with a partner that I trusted. And I think she should get a partner that she trusts and keep trying and see if maybe she won't feel sick anymore and she needs to dump that motherfucker already. 
And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you have a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Herman Lopez on Twitter at G-E-R-M-A-N-R-L-O-P-E-Z. That's Herman R. Lopez. Follow Dirk Kaber on Twitter at Dirk Haber. Speaking of Twitter, Aaron Haley tweets, I really want to get my mom to listen to Savage Lovecast on the regular. Hashtag life goals. Aaron's mom, if you're now a listener, welcome to the Savage Lovecast. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having me.